Welcome to Micro Digressions. This is Spencer Case, and I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Mike Humor. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. So, Mike Humor, as many of you will know, is the host of the Fake News Substack, which I recommend you check out. He is the author of a gazillion articles. And what is it, nine and a half books or something? Uh, yeah, it depends on how you count, you know, <laughs> around 10. Around 10. Uh, that includes like, yeah, an edited volume and two books in progress that are like debate volumes. Yeah, yeah. I, I get to 10 by counting the co-authored books as half a book, not counting the anthology, but counting the two self-published books. Then you get 10. Okay. And I would recommend checking out Knowledge, Reality, and Value, a Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. Really excellent introduction to philosophy book. Read it last year. And on Kindle, it will cost you $0. It will cost you all the gold in the Federal Reserve. <laughs> I think you have to have some special, you have to subscribe to some Amazon thing, right? Like whatever they call it. It's not free for everyone. Oh, Kindle Unlimited. Okay. Kindle Unlimited. Then it's free. But I've got it. So it's free for me. And this one's also free for me because you gave me a copy. So that doesn't really generalize. <laughs> so... The listeners don't know what you meant by this one. This one that I'm holding in my hand, Understanding <laughs> Knowledge, your, your latest self-published book on epistemology. You've got some interesting endorsements here. I think, therefore, I am also by Humor's books, Rene Descartes. A lot of great philosophers really like my work, you know. So I initially wanted to talk to you about skepticism but then I got to the chapter on critical thinking and expert authority, and I disagreed with it so much. I was like, ah, I'm going to have to pick Mike's brain about this. Wow. I mean, you should defer to me because I'm an expert. I see. I see. But could you give us the overview of that argument that you lay out in that chapter? Okay. I think the argument you're referring to is, well, basically, you know, you should trust experts over your own judgment. So, you know, um, there are these controversial issues where you're supposed to think critically and then form your own opinions. But, you know, that's probably not very good advice because to most people, right, and to, to non-experts in particular, because, you know, experts tend to be better at getting to the truth. And the reason why we call some people experts, like what it actually means that they're experts is that they have cognitive advantages over the rest of us you know, with respect to a particular subject matter. And what are these cognitive advantages? Well, like they tend to be very smart people, like much smarter than the average. They tend to have a lot of knowledge, especially about that subject. And they tend to have spent a lot of time thinking about the subject, right? And, you know, engaging with the other experts. And so, and all of those things affect your ability to figure out the truth about a subject. So those people are just in general, 
a lot more likely to come to correct conclusions about the subject that they're expert in. And so, you know, if you're not an expert, then uh, it makes sense that you should defer to the experts on, you know, on whatever, whatever subject you want to form a belief about where there are experts. Well, yeah, let me ask you this. How do you define an expert? I mean, basically, the people who have large cognitive advantages over the average person with respect to a particular subject. So, like, they know a lot about it, and they're smart, and they've thought a lot about it. Okay. So, I might not be in a position to know who the experts are, potentially. I mean, of course, it's possible to not know, but it's frequently pretty easy to identify experts. Like, it's usually easier to identify experts on a subject than it is to directly identify the correct answer, right? Like, uh, oh, I want to form an opinion about gun control. And it's like, it's really hard to identify the truth about gun control by directly examining the evidence. But it's fairly easy to identify who's an expert about it, right? Because, like, you know, you can identify people who have a PhD in whatever, criminology, or it could be philosophy, and who worked on it a lot and know a lot about it. Like, it's not that hard to identify those people. It's also not hard to identify the people who are experts in Freudianism. And I think you even mentioned gender and race experts, so-called. You think this doesn't yeah. apply to them, right? <laughs> right, yeah. There are certain particular areas in which, well, there might be some areas that are kind of bogus areas, right? <laughs> where maybe the whole field is just like a bunch of ideology. And so, you know, there are people who are experts on some ideological field, but being experts there just means that they know the ideology and they know what you're supposed to say, right? So you sort of like, you could trust them with respect to understanding what the ideology says, but maybe not with respect to what's true. But don't you need critical thinking to realize which areas those are? Uh, I mean, that, you know, depends on what you mean by critical thinking. But yeah, I mean, usually you have to think about that. Usually there's not like a meta expert who tells you what the legitimate areas are. Right. I don't know. There aren't people who work on that specifically, I guess. So in this sense, you have to you have to rely on your own judgment to determine what are the areas of expertise and what are the pseudo expertise areas in that respect, I think it's unavoidable. And as far as the legitimate areas of expertise, you've also got to worry about what Nathan Ballantyne calls epistemic trespassing. So genuine epistemic authorities using their authority to steal a base in some other debate. A really good example is doctors coming out with statements against or statements in favor of gun control or the public health experts who signed this letter saying that racism is a disease too. I can't just <laughs> defer to the experts because I have to know, um, I have to have some sense of what the boundaries of their expertise are. And I should be suspicious because I should know that it's human nature for people to abuse power and epistemic authority even when it's legitimate, is a kind of power that I would expect people to abuse. Oh, yeah. So, um, so like, first of all, like, well, you have to exercise your own judgment. I mean, that's kind of tautological, right? So, like, where, 
we're talking about forming beliefs. So automatically you're exercising your own judgment. Even if you're deferring to other people, you're using your judgment to decide that you should defer to those people. So still doing that. Okay. So I wouldn't disagree with that, but, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, so I'm at the central division APA meeting right now. And later today, we're going to have a session on trust and experts, right? So yeah, it turns out that there are cases in which experts are unreliable. And now, but the thing is like, that's compatible with the fact that non-experts are even more unreliable. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. But so, you know, in the session later today, I mean, part of what I'm going to say is, okay, actually, experts are often unreliable, particularly when the topic is politicized, right? So, you know, like, okay, there's a case where like the CDC said that ordinary people don't need to wear masks. And this was like around February of 2020. Okay. And then like, not long after that, like six weeks after that, they were like, oh, no, everyone should wear a mask. And, you know, why is that? <laughs> and they appear to be relying on their expertise both times, you know, to try to convince you. And so at least one of those times, they were either wrong or lying. Okay. And well, what had happened was that they decided that there was a mask shortage. So they better tell people not to wear masks so that there will be enough masks for the medical workers. That's what they later said. They later said that they have been lying because they wanted to promote a desirable social end. Okay, but so here's the problem. Like if the expert is trying to promote a desirable social end, then you can't trust their factual assertions, right? Because they might, they may just be lying. They might even be lying to themselves to try to promote the social end. You can maybe trust them if there's not a political goal in the background. One problem here is that it seems like politics has pervaded everything. So it's not clear that this marks out a clear set of exceptions. Yeah, unfortunately, a bunch of issues that would seem to be scientific issues have become politicized. So I'm uh, not sure what to do about that. But, you know, in some cases, like, they only got politicized recently. So you can kind of, you can, you can kind of tell that the scientific consensus wasn't produced by politics, right? So, right. So like, I don't think the global warming, the views of the climate scientists on global warming were produced by the political or whatever, the left-wing political orientation, because they started saying that before it became politicized, right? Although at this point, new people who come to the issue, they might be affected by their political beliefs, whatever, you know, their affiliation with the left or the right. Okay, there, there are some examples that are good. So like, I think the theory of evolution, there's basically, there's a near unanimous agreement among biologists that evolution is, you know, the explanation of the origin of the human species. So that's probably true. You know, so like, that's at least something that's useful, because somebody might be wondering about that. Right. And it's not, it's not really a political issue. It's not like the biologists are all leftists. And, you know, leftism says evolution, whatever. Yeah, that's right. I had this thought, though, that the, the advantage that an expert has over me in his or her area of expertise is going to be like a general sort of base of knowledge, right? So the doctor knows more than me about medical things, generally speaking. But no one really questions that, right? Everybody's going to concede that, generally speaking, doctors know more about medical stuff. But when people are skeptical of experts, it's not just some random belief we have compared to some random belief that the doctor has. It's 
skepticism that arises in response to something in particular that causes doubt, even if the experts are generally more reliable, well, it's it's sort of maybe a a version of the generality problem for reliabilism. They're, They're reliable in some particular way, but on one particular issue, they might not be, you know? And it's not uncommon for ordinary people to think, okay, this person's a doctor, this person is saying this, but I know my symptoms, this diagnosis doesn't feel right to me, I've read on the internet, it could also be this other thing, the doctors seem to be kind of giving me the runaround, I'm going to get a second opinion. And it seems like I've heard a lot of stories of people doing stuff like that, and they get some other expert that's like, oh yeah, that it's it's this. And that requires a bit of critical thinking, right? Even just to know to get a second opinion. I mean, notice that the response is, I'm going to get a second opinion, not I'm just going to like, you know, treat myself or, you know, or I'm going to go to a witch doctor, right? You go to another real doctor. Uh, Now, I should say like, so, you know, Americans widely trust doctors. And actually, I think Americans over trust their doctors. They think the doctors are more reliable than they are. And like, so one reason is actually you care a lot more about your condition than your doctor does. Like the doctor is probably smarter than you and more knowledgeable than you in general, but he also probably doesn't care as much about you. So he's not going to be willing to spend the amount of time thinking about your specific case that you would. So it is totally possible that you could figure out things that the doctor, although he could, wouldn't in fact, right? Right. But, you know, like, again, like I say, if you think the doctor's wrong, it makes sense to consult another doctor. But now I think your criticism of critical thinking seems seems kind of trivial. If it just means don't try to figure out everything entirely by yourself. Yeah, because because it just seems like. You're going to need to use critical thinking or what we would ordinarily describe as critical thinking to decide which experts to trust. And so I'm not sure what it amounts to. Now, like, oh, we could have an argument about the use of the phrase critical thinking, but that's not the interesting part. So is there some interesting, useful advice here? Well, uh, yes, because, you know, figuring out which experts to trust, like that's different from directly trying to figure out the answer, right, to the question that they have expertise on, right? And uh, it's often easier to figure out who's a good expert to listen to than it is to directly figure out the answer to the question, right? Experts are often flawed, but also the thing to keep in mind is so are you, right? So like, I totally agree. Experts are often wrong, right? It might even be that they're usually wrong. It's just that non-experts are wrong even more, right? Like almost always, right? So, you know, and, and, you know, when you say these things, like, like I mentioned previously, how experts could be politically biased, but also non-experts are politically biased. So, you know, take that into account. And people usually don't take into account the fact that they themselves are politically biased, right? If I'm trying to give advice to people, I guess like the average ordinary person is just way worse than the average expert at figuring out whatever they're trying to figure out, right? And it's like, you and I are smarter and more educated than most people. So we might not appreciate this, right? But if you just tell random people out there, do your own research, you know, and figure stuff out, they're going to just come to a whole bunch of wildly incorrect conclusions. You know, like you shouldn't take vaccines because they have microchips in them. And Bill Gates is trying to microchip everyone. Yeah, but so this is another thing I 
I thought about while reading this, anyone who reads this epistemology book is going to probably be more intelligent than average. And if we're just comparing the average person to the average expert or something, then it seems like, of course, the expert's going to win, especially if you define expert as, as somebody who's generally more reliable. But the kind of cases that we care about are reasonably intelligent people who have some specific reason to doubt the authorities over something. And that happens quite a bit. Yeah. So I, I worry that, that the thesis that you end up with is, is kind of weaker and doesn't give as much guidance for an intelligent person who thinks, yeah, I think maybe I've thought more about this particular thing, right? Like, especially you, you, you give the example of political experts based on Philip Tetlock's research about like predictions, and they just barely outperform the average person, which is basically like a random guess. Yes. So one, I, I, I question that you should even call these people experts. If you're just barely doing better <laughs> than a random, I, maybe we should just say that they aren't experts. Like, yeah. But the, the other thought is if that is the state of these political experts is they're just barely outperforming chance. And I'm a, I'm a smart person. And I thought about a particular issue really carefully then I could easily trust my own judgment over that of the experts. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of saying that you could become an expert, right? So in, in Tetlock's research, you know, there are sort of amateur experts and professional experts, right? That is, you know, there are people who, although it's not their job, they just studied a particular area a lot, right? And so those people can perform at the level of the credentialed experts. I guess, yeah, maybe that's the distinction, you know, the credentialed versus not credentialed experts. Uh, so, you know, like there's some professor of some subject, and then there's some person who just loves that subject. Like they could perform equally well. But it's just like, oh, so you might think, oh, so then, you know, maybe there's no application for this advice, right? Because you could just like do your own research and find out the thing. Well, yes, but in most cases, like the people who form their own opinions are not becoming experts they're not appreciating the amount of time that you have to spend to become an expert in a subject. They're like, I'm going to read a few articles on the internet and then I'm going to find out the answer to this question, right? The thing is like, people don't recognize how much misleading information there is and how much you have to know in order to not be misled, right? By the tons and tons, like almost all the information about certain subjects is misleading, right? This seems like the right policy to me. You should suspend judgment or lean toward what the majority of experts say, unless you can explain in terms that they would accept why the experts accept this view and why they reject the opposing view. I think if you're able to do that, you've passed a hurdle where, I don't know, you have a, a right to your opinion or in some sense. I don't really like that that phrase, having a right to your opinion. but I think you've earned, you know, you've earned something, I guess. If you can if you can say this is what your view is in terms that you would accept, this is why you accept it, and I have something to say about why you reject the opposing view. I think at that point I'm able to make up my own mind. 
Yeah, no, and you know, we should clarify that when you're able to explain what the experts would say, or you know, explain why they have their view, you should be able to explain it in such a way that they would agree that that's why they have it. Right. right. So yeah, we don't mean the explanation is oh because they were paid off by whatever by the nefarious you know trilateral commission who's running the world or whatever. <laughs> you know, like here's a hypothetical to assess this, right? So there's some there's some area in which there's a consensus opinion among experts. Oh, and so by the way, like sorry, just as a side point, well, you can't trust the experts unless there is a consensus opinion. So if you just heard like one expert thinks P. Well, that's not really enough, right? Because you need to know whether most experts think P. And it should really be like a pretty strong consensus before you can say that you should defer to that. There are a lot of issues on which you just have to withhold judgment because the experts don't agree among themselves. Okay. So anyway, so there's an issue where there's a consensus among the experts. Okay. And let's say you personally have no opinion about it, but then you meet some third party who's like, you know, not really an expert. Like I come to you and I say, hey, Spencer, I studied this issue. And I disagree with the consensus opinion. What is your assessment of my likelihood of being correct? Right, so like physicists apparently periodically get letters from people who think that they've discovered a way to build a perpetual motion machine, right? which is impossible according to the accepted laws of thermodynamics. Basically, every physicist agrees that this is impossible, but sometimes people will send plans. Right? So suppose I tell you I've created a perpetual motion machine. Okay, and what should be your credence that I'm correct? And I, you know, I'm a smart guy. So, right. Well, your credence should be near zero, right? Okay, so, you know, that, that indicates the reliability of a lone dissenter going against the consensus of experts, right? Now, what if it's you yourself who have come to the conclusion that you've built a perpetual motion machine? Well, then you should have a really low credence that you yourself are correct. So like, that's sort of a, the fundamental idea here. Like, if I were saying this about anyone else, you know, anyone else who's going against the consensus, you would see that that person's almost certainly wrong. So you should also apply that to yourself. Yeah, I guess my worry here is that you're cherry picking the examples because that's one where, yeah, I definitely don't think that you made a perpetual motion machine. But does that generalize to expertise? I'm skeptical of this whole idea of coming up with a general epistemology of expertise because expertise includes so many different kinds of things, right? It includes, yeah, I mean, you even mentioned the example of, of philosophers. And you think that the fact that philosophers disagree so much means that we don't have to trust their authority. I would say, as far as that goes, there's one sense in which we might be able to say that philosophers are experts, which is even though philosophers disagree with each other about their views, tell me if you think this is right. I think philosophers are generally pretty good at evaluating the best arguments for a particular position, right? They might disagree with each other intensely over whether the arguments for or against abortion are better but if you ask philosophers to rank the pro-life arguments from worst to best, I think there would be, I wouldn't want to say consensus, but I think there would be a lot less disagreement about that. So I think as far as agreement about what's reasonable, there's more of a consensus among philosophers about 
what's reasonable, at least relative to alternatives, than there is about what's right. And maybe reasonableness is an epistemic goal we should care about. Yeah, I would be tempted to think, well, reasonableness is a, it's a means to truth. So if you don't get to the truth, then it doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, so I think philosophers would have wide agreement that certain arguments are bad, right? And so like, if you're, if you're giving one of these arguments that almost all philosophers agree is bad, then you're almost certainly wrong. And you should stop saying that thing. <laughs> okay, but we don't generally have agreement on what's a good argument, right? It's more like, it's like, there are a bunch of arguments that we agree, oh, that, those are terrible. And then it goes up to arguments that, you know, a lot of people think are good, but they're disputed. <laughs> And you don't really get up to the point where there's an argument that everyone agrees is good. The fetus has 46 chromosomes, so it's a human, therefore killing it is murder. I guess like philosophers will agree that that's not a good argument. But, you know, uh, you know, it has the potential to have a life like ours, therefore killing it is murder. We don't agree on whether that's a good argument. We'll agree that that's better than the first argument. So, yeah, you're right about that. That's interesting because I was going to ask you about this. You think that reasonableness is instrumental? It doesn't have intrinsic epistemic value? Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess, well, so, you know, like I'm a deontologist about epistemic obligations. You're just required to be epistemically rational. You just have to follow the norms of epistemic rationality. And it's not, you know, not to maximize anything, right? So if believing something irrationally would cause you later to have two rational beliefs, that would also be true. Uh, you still can't do it. But okay, but so, you know, if the, so like if the question is, why should you be epistemically rational? I just think there's not a further answer to that. It's just sort of foundational, right? But if it's like, oh, well, why is it good to have people be epistemically rational? Then I guess my answer is, well, like that generally leads to their having more true beliefs I think there's a tension there because suppose I could get true beliefs somehow by not believing rationally. It's like the rule worship. It's an epistemic version of the rule worship objection. Like why should I think that reasonableness is like inherently good if, you know, I can just have true beliefs and true beliefs are, the, are what matter. Whereas I think like, suppose you're in a brain in a vat type situation, which we will be getting to. You can have one person who's in this skeptical scenario and trying to base his beliefs on evidence or what seems to be evidence or however you want to describe it, where somebody else is in the experience machine or whatever and just deceiving themselves, even with regard to what appears to be the evidence they have. I want to say that one person could be in an epistemically better state than the other, even though neither of them getting anywhere close to the truth. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I was thinking that, well, you just like have epistemic obligations, you know, regardless of good or bad, like they're not consequentialist. So you're just obligated to not contradict yourself. And, you know, whether or not it's good or bad that you have contradictory beliefs, right? But if you just sort of consult your intuitions, there's somebody who's always being rational, another person who's always being irrational, but they're all m both mistaken. <laughs> um, is it better that the one's rational? I guess it seems like it's better. I don't really have an explanation of why. I'm tempted to say, I don't know, maybe it's better because of like that 
they would get to true, a rational person would get to true beliefs in normal circumstances. But you're sort of like, maybe you wonder why that matters, right? You know, because it's not their actual circumstances. You know, maybe there's a sort of like, you know, an appeal to the value of virtue. If the person is being more virtuous, and maybe that's intrinsically good, like they will have an intrinsically good character or something. The radical normative skeptic who says we don't even have reasons for belief says, well, okay, well, that's fine. I can't be reasonable in believing my view, but at, at least my view is true. That's all that matters, right? Is truth. And I, I just want to say, no, that's not all that matters. That's one thing that matters. Sorry, there's something very weird about like completely divorcing truth from your own justification, right? So saying like P is true, but I've got no reason at all to think that. Like that's very weird. How could how could you know that it was true while having no reason at all to believe in, right? Right. And then the person goes, I don't know that it's true. It just is true. But it's like, no, well, you're not in a position to assert that. If you don't know that that's the case, then, you know, what's going on when you say that? You're just like saying random things and then hoping that it turns out to be true. Like you could say that about a third party. It's totally fine for me to say, like, he doesn't have any reason to believe P, but in fact, P is true. And I could say that because I could know that it was true, even though the other person doesn't. So I know that he has an unjustified but true belief. Okay, that's fine. But I can't say I have an unjustified but true belief, because then how do I know that it's true? Yeah, I don't know what to make about this. It does seem like truth is the main goal of, of belief. But at the same time, it does seem to me that there's some inherent value in forming your beliefs reasonably, even when you get it wrong. And I don't know if the best way to understand that is in like a moralized way. I mean, that's where I'm inclined to go to think that it's like, it's virtuous. It's yeah, it's, it's tied in with virtue somehow, moral virtue to um, form your beliefs in a reasonable way, even when you're not getting things right. Yeah. You know, like I kind of thought about, oh, what's the relationship between justification and truth? And it's something like, well, forming justified beliefs just constitutes the rational pursuit of truth, right? So, you know, you think about like the relationship between maximizing expected utility and utility. So somebody could maximize expected utility, but then wind up with very low utility. And another one who wasn't maximizing expected utility could wind up with more utility. So, so why care about expected utility, right? And the answer is something like, well, if you care about utility then the way that you pursue it is by maximizing expected utility, right? So it's sort of like, well, if you care about truth, the way that you pursue truth is by forming justified beliefs and not unjustified ones, even though that doesn't guarantee that you get truth, right? That's just sort of what constitutes a rational person trying to get true beliefs. I don't want to say all's well that ends well. Either in the moral or the epistemic case, I don't want to say the person who does something extremely reckless, you know, endangering a bunch of lives, but everything turns out okay. Well, I guess the, the, it's the bottom line that matters. I guess what the utilitarian would say is you, you would be thinking about, well, you shouldn't recommend that kind of behavior to anyone else, or this person might do the same kind of reckless conduct again in the future. But I think I can think about the particular instance and I can think, no, Seems wrong. It seems wrong in the epistemic case, too. Yeah. 
I mean, the person is blameworthy, even though they got a good outcome. Um, and, you know, like I'm thinking, well, oh, why are they blameworthy? Well, they were, in a sense, not pursuing the correct goal, right? So given the value of truth, you're obligated to be pursuing truth. And by forming unjustified beliefs, they're not pursuing truth, even though they accidentally got it. <laughs> so like, you know, in a sense, the value of truth means that they shouldn't have been doing that. Right? Because uh, the value of truth just sort of like calls for you to pursue it. Yeah, but the value of true belief would be instrumental, right? I mean... Oh, uh, you're saying truth itself might be an instrumental value? Yeah. I mean, it's partly instrumental and partly intrinsic, I guess. So, you know, like, yeah, I, I guess it's intrinsically better to have true beliefs rather than false ones. And also usually instrumentally better because usually you can satisfy the rest of your goals better if you have correct beliefs. Yeah, what do you say to the whole trivial belief subjection to that? Where, I mean, you're familiar with this, like how many moles are there in Donald Trump's left thigh? Like, like that's not a true belief you need, you know? It doesn't seem like, like that makes anyone's life go better. It seems like the truths that we care about have some practical bearing or some moral significance. Because when you think of these cases, you isolate the variable of practical and moral significance, and then the truth itself doesn't seem that important. That's the argument. Yeah. Well, the truths that we care about could be practically useful, or they could be theoretically significant and not necessarily practically useful. So, like, let's say we want to understand the origin of the universe, right? Like, just why? Because why are we here, you know? And so if we could figure out why the universe exists, that would be a great theoretical significance. And then we would feel like we had an understanding, you know, understanding of a big thing like the universe. But that wouldn't necessarily be practically useful. Right. So we figure out that it started in a big bang 14 billion years ago. And then we do what with that information? And like so far, we haven't done anything with it. Right. It's not obvious what you do with that information. So but it's still valuable. Right. It's valuable to know that. And, you know, and not to think that whatever, you know, God created it in 4004 BC by just speaking some words. I think you could probably add a third category of truths that might be intrinsically valuable. So what about particular facts that are momentous in terms of like world history, like knowing the precise cause of World War I, for example, that's something that historians debate, or knowing some particular fact even like about Julius Caesar or something like that, that could lend a lot to our historical understanding but it wouldn't be theoretical and it also wouldn't be practical, but it still seems like that could be the kind of thing that could be intrinsically important. Oh, I see. And I was, I was thinking that it would be theoretically significant. I mean, if we found out why world war one started, then that would probably be theoretically important for understanding war, just the phenomenon of war, but it could turn out that, I don't know, like maybe, maybe the reason it started had to do with some really weird combination of factors that, wouldn't be expected to happen again and didn't happen in any other wars, <laughs> but it would still be interesting to know that. Yeah. So like, I guess we would say, oh, that's not theoretically significant, but we would say that helps us understand our world. 
because World War One was a huge event that affected a whole bunch of other stuff. So if we know why that happened, then we kind of have more understanding of like, why are we here, like in this situation that we are now? You know, you don't have to call it theoretical because it might be just a one-off event, but it's still like, it fits under understanding our world, right? Whereas if you find out some detail that didn't have effects on a bunch of other things, then who cares, right? So, you know, this is kind of part of my critique of the people doing history of philosophy, right? (laughs) They're looking at a particular passage, and then they're trying to figure out, apparently, they're trying to figure out exactly what thoughts were going through the mind of a specific individual when he wrote that passage. And it doesn't matter whether that had any effect on anyone else. It doesn't matter whether what he was thinking was actually communicated to anyone. Like Maybe everyone else thought that the author meant P, but, you know, the historian of philosophy figures out that he actually meant Q, but that didn't have any effect on anyone because nobody thought that he was saying Q. <laughs> so, like, right, in that case, I think, yeah, that's insignificant knowledge. You're going to different history of philosophy talks than I've gone to because the ones I've been to are like they take some philosopher who is obviously confused and they just try to come up with some way of rescuing it. That was obviously not what the person was thinking, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's the way that it usually comes across, but the historians claim (laughs) that that is what the person was thinking. So I'm saying, even if they're right, you know, who cares? But yeah, no, I think that that is what's happening. Like usually what they're trying to do is, Well, yeah, a couple of things. They're trying to, like, make the guy seem a lot more rational and correct than he was. And then the other thing is they're trying to surprise you by saying the person didn't think the things that they're famous for thinking. So, like, if you can figure out how Kant was a consequentialist, that's great. You know, just like, let's, let's come up with some interpretation that somehow is consistent with the text so that he's a consequentialist. I hope one day... History of philosophy people will do for me what they're now doing for historical figures. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's going to devote his entire career to uh, looking at everything I did. It might look like he said something stupid here, but actually seen in the proper light. I'm going to figure out how you never made any mistakes, but also you may not appreciate it when they try to figure out how you didn't say any of the things that people think you said. (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Oh, you know, turns out that Spencer was actually like a woke ideologue and a Marxist. Wow, that is some esoteric philosophy right there. Yeah. So I've been eager to talk to you about external world skepticism, one of the many topics that you discuss in understanding knowledge. And I guess before we get into that, a preliminary question is, how do you see these arguments about skepticism, like generally speaking, you know, like on one hand, there's, they're crazy and it's not clear why we should take them seriously. And there are a couple of different schools of thought on this. So like Michael Weber thinks that we have to take skepticism seriously. And if we can't defeat the skeptics arguments on terms more or less that the skeptic would accept then, well, that's tough for us. We don't have knowledge of other minds or the external world or whether the universe existed five minutes ago or whatever else it is. The 
alternative way of thinking about this, which I'm sympathetic to, is that, no, of course we know that skepticism is false, but it's interesting that there are such powerful arguments that seem to suggest that we don't know this. And so by considering these interesting arguments, we can learn more about epistemology. Yeah. So you summed it up, like, you know, you started by asking what I think, and then you basically said what I think. Yeah. So, you know, think about it like this, like, so this is the way I think about paradoxes, right? You know, when you discover a paradox, it's interesting. It's interesting to figure out what went wrong, right? So, you know, let's say I encountered an argument that nothing can ever move, you know, like Zeno's argument, right? This is the argument. In order to go from point A to point B, you have to first go half the distance, and then you have to go half the remaining distance, and then half the remaining distance, et cetera. And uh, so there's an infinite series of things that you have to do, and it's impossible to complete an infinite series, and therefore nothing can ever move, right? Okay, it can't get to its destination, and then, you know, that's true no matter where you put the destination, so nothing can ever go anywhere. <laughs> so motion is an illusion. Okay, and then the, re <laughs> the reason why we think about that is not that, oh my God, we need to figure out whether things move. No, things move. We know that things move. <laughs> but here's an argument, like what's, what's wrong with this argument? And if we could figure out what's wrong with that argument, maybe we would learn something interesting about the nature of space or whatever, or motion or infinity, right? Okay, and so, you know, similarly, there are these arguments that nobody ever knows anything, which is insane. So, but it's not exactly easy to say what went wrong with these arguments. And if we could say what went wrong, that would probably tell us something interesting about the nature of knowledge, you know, or justification and, or belief or whatever, right? So when you encounter a paradox, what it means is that there's something wrong with your belief system, probably that you have inconsistent beliefs, right? Or at least inconsistent intuitions or something, right? So, you know, like, you believe that motion occurs, but you also believe that you can't complete an infinite series. And you also believe that space is infinitely divisible. And these lead to a contradiction, apparently. So you got to figure out what's wrong, right? And like, these are all interesting beliefs. So it's interesting if one of them is wrong, right? So similarly about knowledge, like, if you think all knowledge requires reasons for belief, and then you also think that we know some things, and then you also think that circular reasons don't produce knowledge and also that we don't have an infinite number of reasons. If you believe all that, then you've got an inconsistent belief system. And so you should try to reconcile that contradiction, right? Try to fix your belief system so it's not inconsistent anymore. I think that probably the two most interesting skeptical arguments are one, the, the one you just gave, which was the skeptics web or skeptics net argument that how do you what is that just goes with what it, what could the structure of justification be and then the other one which is the one i wanted to talk to you about is the brain and that argument or the skeptical hypothesis argument do you want to summarize how that goes yeah i mean you know you know, imagine that there is this brain being kept alive in a vat of nutrients and you know it has these little wires connected to it to stimulate it and the scientists who created this figured out the exact pattern of stimulation to feed into a brain to give it a perfect illusion of living in the real world, right? And, okay, and, you know, they can scan the brain to figure out what the brain thinks that it's doing, and then they modify 
the appearances so that it looks to the brain as if it's succeeding in doing those things, right? So there's this perfect virtual reality simulation. And, you know, then the scientists, they might program into the simulation like an experience of hearing some crazy guy talk about a brain in a vat just for laughs, you know. And so then, okay, so that the argument is going to be, well, you don't know you're not a brain in a vat. And to know anything about the external world, you would have to know you're not a brain in a vat. So you don't know anything about the external world. Okay. And then, oh, well, why think that you don't know you're not a brain in a vat? There's further reasoning for this, right? Well, it seems like in order to know something, you have to have some evidence for it. You have to have some reason for believing it. But if it's a contingent external world proposition, then it seems like you have to have evidence for it. You don't have any evidence that you're not a brain in a vat. Okay, and why well, think you don't have any evidence? Well, like, so it's a contingent external world proposition, right? Whether you're a brain of that or not. The only evidence you have for such propositions is your sensory experiences. You would be having the same sensory experiences if you were a brain of that. So your sensory experiences are not evidence that you're not a brain of that. So you have no evidence that you're not a brain of that. So you have no reason for thinking you're not a brain of that. So you don't know you're not a brain of that. Okay, so then you don't know anything about the external world, right? Like, so that's the argument, you know, and that they're like all of the premises of this seem pretty plausible on their own, right? So there are two strategies for responding to this that you discuss. There's the direct realist and the indirect realist strategy. So I wanted to hear each of those. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we'll, we'll start with the direct realist view which is sort of a minority view, but the direct realist view is, you know, when we perceive, we have direct awareness of something in the external world, right? And this contrasts with the indirect realist view that when you're perceiving, you only have direct awareness of your own mental states, like your sensations and perceptual experiences, and you can only infer stuff about the external world from that. Okay, so the direct realist would be like, no, we're directly aware of external objects, and so we get to take external world propositions as foundational, right? So the direct realist would be like, you know, I could just like look at my hand and then I'll be directly aware of a hand. And so then, you know, also I get to have a foundational, non-inferentially justified belief that there's a hand. Okay. And so then, you know, when you look at yourself, you're just going to see that you're not a brain in a vat. Okay. Now, in terms of the argument that I gave, you know, a minute ago, what went wrong? Well, I guess what went wrong was the assumption that all of your evidence is your sensory experiences, right? Like in a certain sense, the direct realist view is, no, your evidence is the actual facts about the external world. Like when I look at my hand, the actual hand itself is part of my evidence, not my sensory experience of a hand. And so the brain in a vat hypothesis fails to explain the evidence, it only it explains your sensory experiences. It doesn't explain the actual hand being there. Right? In fact, it says that there isn't a hand there. So it's a, it like the brain of that theory is just like a total failure at explaining evidence. Sound good? It sounds good. Yeah. Just reject mentalism about evidence. And then it's just false to say that we have the same evidence in both cases. Yeah. But... So there was something that you say on page 160 of your book that sort of threw me for a loop here. And it was the hallucination objection. This is in a different chapter dealing with theories of perception, but you see how it relates. So yeah, 
the argument goes, in the hallucination case, you have the same justification for believing that there is a cat as you do when you normally perceive a cat. In the hallucination case, your justification for believing that there is a cat, therefore, does not consist in your being directly aware of the cat. So therefore, when you normally perceive a cat, your justification for believing that there is a cat also does not consist in your being directly aware of the cat. Okay, you accept this and say objects of perception aren't themselves the source of justification, but the appearances are the source of justification, even though the objects of perception are external objects and not mental states. It's the mental states that provide the justification. But I'm confused because I thought that the whole point of the brain and Nevat skepticism argument was to undercut the justification in just that way by going at the appearances. Well, I mean, like, what is the skeptic's theory about why you don't have justification? My theory about the source of justification is that you have justification for believing P when it appears to you that P and you have no reasons for doubting that. Right. And like the skeptic is not going to deny that you have the appearance. So what would be their story about why you lack justification? This is my understanding of their story, right? They think that what you start with is the belief that you have an experience, right? So they think that when you have an experience, the experience justifies only the belief that you have that experience. And then you have to try to infer something else by inference of the best explanation. You have to try to make an inference of the best explanation that the experience was caused by an external object. And then there's an alternative explanation, which is the brain of that scenario. So you have to like show why the real world scenario is a better explanation than the brain of that scenario, whatever, right? But anyway, like my view and the direct realist view is, no, when you have an experience, the experience justifies the external world belief directly. It doesn't justify the belief in an experience. So like when it appears to you that P, that justifies P. That doesn't justify, quote, it appears to me that P, unquote, right? I see. So the appearances are the source of all justification, but they justify things outside of themselves. Yeah. So an appearance is a type of mental state, which represents the world as being some way, right? When you have an appearance, it justifies its content. It doesn't justify a proposition about itself. And so, you know, think about like when you believe that P, what you believe is not that you believe that P. What you believe is P, right? So like when you have an appearance, what that is supporting is P, right? When you have the appearance of P, it's supporting P. It's not supporting it appears to me that people. I wondered what you would think of the view that the reason you should believe your appearances is that the default explanation is that they are telling you the truth, right? You have a mind. If something appears to you that it's the case, your default explanation is that it is the case. And that's why it appears to you that it's the case. Well, I mean, what is meant by the default explanation? Like, like why and, and why is that the default explanation? I mean, you might think like maybe the default explanation just means the thing that you're justified in believing, right? But then, you know, this isn't really explanatory, right? Because it's sort of like, you know, you're justified in believing it because you're justified in believing it, right? I don't see how it's circular, though. I don't see how this is circular. If I ask, like, why should I accept my appearances? 
one thing that you might say is, well, because the best explanation for the fact that you're having those experiences is that they're true, or at least until you have some defeated, that seems like that's the best explanation. Yeah. I mean, okay. So there has to be some, you know, further story about how that's the best explanation. And it's not totally clear that that's going to work out. Like it's not totally clear that you can show why that is the best explanation. Okay. But the other thing is like, I think there's kind of a conceptual confusion The conceptual confusion is thinking that when it appears to you that P, what you're aware of is the appearance. No, when it appears to you that P, that is your seemingly being aware of P, right? And so, like, if you draw the conclusion that it appears to you that P, that requires you to have an appearance that it appears to you that P. Like, that's, you know, it appears to me that P is a claim about my mental state which I would acquire by doing introspection and then having an introspective appearance that I have the first appearance. And then, you know, when I did that, so I would have to trust the introspective appearance, right? And so, you know, and on the view where you don't get to just trust the content of your appearances, but you only get to have the belief that you have an appearance, you wouldn't actually know that it appears to you that P, you would only know that it appears to you that it appears to you that P, but actually you wouldn't know that. You would just know that it appears 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 that it that it appears to you. Yeah, that is a good point. Anything more need to be said about the direct realist strategy? I don't know. We could talk about objections. Like, thing you might think is, oh, you know, this is just begging the question, right? <laughs> because, like, the direct realist just says that we get foundational knowledge of the external world. And the skeptic is saying that we don't have knowledge of the external world. So I'm just like assuming a view that directly contradicts skepticism in order to rebut skepticism. So you might think, oh, that's kind of begging the question or something or, you know, unsatisfying. Right. But in reply, I don't take the job to be to convince an actual skeptic. Like, I don't take that to be our task when we're talking about skepticism. I take our task to be to explain why a normal person starting from normal beliefs does not have a reason to give up those beliefs and become a skeptic. Right. And so like normal people usually start with something like a direct realist view, if they have any view. So if you start from there, I'm saying the skeptic hasn't given you a good reason to change your beliefs. And that's enough to count as a response to skepticism. Couldn't you also ask, why isn't the skeptic begging the question against the direct realist and just refusing to accept what the direct realist thinks is evidence. The fact that the skeptic has gone first, like really shouldn't matter here so much. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and like this happens often, right? There are two philosophers who have opposing views and, you know, each of them is assuming something that directly contradicts the other one's view, but it's symmetrical. (laughs) So the skeptic is assuming that, you know, you can't have foundations or something like that. And then the foundationalist is assuming that we do have knowledge. So they're both assuming something that contradicts the other one's view. Either they're both begging the question or neither of them is, right? And by the way, the skeptic didn't really go first. <laughs> like direct realists existed before skeptics did. So the direct realist went first. So if you think that makes a difference, then it's the skeptic who's begging the question. Yeah, it's the skeptic's job to get us to doubt, to raise grounds for doubt. 
Um, not the realist job to convince the skeptic. I think that's right. I've wondered though, how much, like in order to try to generate some doubt, the skeptic has to point to things that are in the real world or to our, like our real experiences. So like, we actually do have dreams. We actually do have some technologies that we could we could speculate about those things being implemented in the way that they are in, in these thought experiments. But like imagine dreams didn't happen. Like there was no such thing as a dream. People, it was just like completely uh, unconscious without any experiences when they slept. And there was no technology like this even conceived of. I'm not sure exactly how to put the point, but it seems like you can't just have your skeptical scenario be, well, you believe P, but what if not P? Like, no, there has to be some undermining defeater and they have to appeal to something that we have experience with. So, you know, like what Descartes was doing in the meditations is what he thought he was doing was giving us grounds for doubting. That is, he was not trying to merely raise a logical possibility of your being wrong, but to mention some evidence that you might be wrong. And that evidence would come from your current actual belief system, right? And I think this because like every time he introduces one of the skeptical scenarios, he says something about his pre-existing belief system, right? So he says like, you know, I've actually had dreams in which I thought that I was awake, and so that's what's going to give me the reason for doubting my current beliefs. When he introduces the deceiving God, he says, I've long believed that there was an all-powerful God and whatever. Okay, and so therefore, God could put false images into my mind. Okay, and then he considers the response to this, where someone might prefer to deny the existence of God rather than to admit that everything is doubtful. Okay, and so like, well... That only, like, that only makes sense as a response if you think that the skeptical doubt has to come from your actual belief system. Okay, so, right, so, like, that's what Descartes was assuming. You only have a ground for doubt if something in your actual belief system or something that seems plausible to you, I don't know, like, casts, casts doubt on your beliefs. Okay, but contemporary skeptics usually say no. It could just be any logical possibility. You can say any logical possibility. It doesn't have to be supported by anything in your belief system. And then, you know, if it's a possibility in which your beliefs would be false, but you'd still have the same appearances, then it's grounds for doubt. But yet, in the kinds of examples they give, they try to appeal to our real experiences. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So notice that they give the brain in a vat scenario and they don't give the kidney in a vat scenario. Maybe you're a kidney in a vat. Right, <laughs> like because maybe kidneys are conscious and brains are not, because right, because according to them we don't know anything about the external world. So you just pick any random object. <laughs> maybe you're like a tree in a vat, <laughs> like, and you know the scientists are simulating the tree. Matthias Stoip, uh, your colleague, has some really good examples in his evidentialist anti-skepticism paper, which I think is great is he says, think of some really uncompelling skeptical scenarios. So like, imagine that you're a dog who is convinced that you're a human. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, look, I've got a hand. Oh, well, that's exactly what you would think if you were a dog that was convinced that it was a human. That has no force whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I think I heard that example from Keith DeRose. Where, you know, so, 
right? So the the idea was, oh, you know, maybe to have a skeptical scenario, you just need a scenario in which you fail the tracking condition on knowledge. Okay, like, so it's a scenario in which you believe that P, but, you know, even even if it were false, you'd still believe it. Right? And so so he considers the possibility that you might be an intelligent dog who is always incorrectly thinking that it has hands. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's like somehow that doesn't seem compelling, even though if you were an intelligent dog who incorrectly thinks he has hands, you would still think that you had hands and you would think that you weren't a dog who incorrectly thinks he has hands. <laughs> so that's, but that's not a good skeptical scenario. And then he says something like, well, probably because it doesn't really explain how you would come to the, that false belief. <laughs> the brain of that scenario explains how the brain would come to the false beliefs in a way that makes sense. And then the, the mistaken dog doesn't explain why the dog thinks that it's human. Yeah, but it only, it only helps explain because you have some apprehension of the causal mechanism. So it once again appeals to things that you really do believe. Actually, I think Matthias's example was even more wild. He's like, what if you're a round square? You actually are a round square being deceived <laughs> in the most extreme way. You're, you're so deceived that you think that like round squares aren't even logically possible. That's how deceived you are. I'm not going to yeah. stay up all night worrying about that one. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a proposition which entails that you would be mistaken in your current beliefs, but everything would appear to you the way it does. But it doesn't count as a effective skeptical scenario. So that shows that something more is required, right? So like whatever it is that at least superficially seems compelling about the skeptical scenarios, it's got to be something that goes beyond that. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's plausible that the difference is that the compelling skeptical scenarios appeal to something in your current belief system and the uncompelling ones just like don't appeal to anything. They just say <laughs> They just say a thing for no reason. So I wanted to hit you up on your uh, indirect realist response to yeah. the brain and vat skepticism. I guess this is more like a fallback for you because you've already got your direct realist response. So it's overdetermined that you've got a good response to this kind of skepticism. But why don't you go ahead and explain what that response is? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there there may be more than one thing wrong with the brain in a vat scenario, right? So, yeah, it doesn't explain the fact that I have hands. That's the first problem. But also, I claim it's not really a good explanation of my sensory experiences either. So it's a possible explanation, but it's not a good one, right? And the basic reason why it's not a good explanation is it's kind of unfalsifiable, right? Which, you know, is generally considered to be a bad feature of scientific theories, this idea about falsifiability being important for theories goes back to Karl Popper. Unfortunately, Sir Karl was unable to explain why falsifiability matters. So he didn't give a good explanation of that. But we now have a good explanation from the Bayesians. Right? And so the explanation is basically, oh, wait, sorry, I'm going to say why the brain of out scenario is unfalsifiable. I guess that's kind of obvious, right? So the scientists have this apparatus for stimulating the brain. And it's just kind of part of the scenario that this apparatus is capable of producing any sequence of experiences. So no matter what experiences you have, you can explain them in exactly the same way. You could just say, oh, well, the scientist decided to stimulate the brain to have that experience. Anyway, and it doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> so, okay, so, you know, 
with with my current actual experience as well, a scientist decided to give you a simulation of being like a philosopher in Colorado in the early 21st century. Okay, but then, you know, if uh, if I find myself suddenly flying, you know, as would seem to be impossible, they can still say, yeah, the scientists decided to program a simulation of that. And then, you know, if I see the laws of nature being violated, yeah, the scientists decided to program it. It's just like anything that happens, they just say that, okay? So it's unfalsifiable because, you know, it explains every possible experience, like every logically possible experience. As a matter of fact, if I, if I don't see any objects, they can still explain that. And what's wrong with unfalsifiable theories? So the real world hypothesis, i.e. the hypothesis that I'm perceiving the real world normally through reliable senses, <laughs> that is falsifiable, right? So like if I have incoherent experiences that would falsify or at least disconfirm, right, that would count as evidence against the real world hypothesis. So if I perceive stuff that doesn't make sense, right, if I have just incompatible observations, if I see regularly see things and then they don't correspond to what I can touch, right? And they don't correspond to what other people see. Or if I just like can't interpret any of my experiences as representing any objects, because it's just like, you know, random color flashes and whatever, <laughs> that would tend to go against the real world hypothesis. All right. Now, it doesn't have to conclusively refute the real world hypothesis. It just has to be evidence against it. So the real world theory is more falsifiable than the brain of that theory. Okay. And what's wrong with unfalsifiable theories? Basically, a theory that can't be falsified also can't be supported. The way that a theory gets to be supported is it predicts something and that thing happens. And the way a theory gets to be undermined is it predicts something and that thing doesn't happen. And then an unfalsifiable theory doesn't predict anything. So it can't be supported and it can't be undermined either. All right, now... So the real world theory is better than the brain of that theory because it predicts something and that thing happens. And the brain of that theory doesn't predict anything. Okay, so like that's the short version of like why the real world is better than the brain of that. So one thing that I wondered while reading this is, is the real world hypothesis really falsifiable? Because it seems like whatever happens, I'm going to say, well, I guess... I'm still in the real world, right? Like the way you can think about this is think about like more mild skeptical scenarios, right? Like think of the Truman Show skeptical scenario. So there's this show with Jim Carrey. He's in this giant, what, planetarium or something with a fake sun and a fake moon and stars and all of that fake sky. And all of his friends are, are actors, but he really does perceive external objects, right? He finds out all of this stuff is fake and escapes from the dome. And apparently there are activists who are worried about freeing him so he can live an authentic life. Talk about ineffective altruism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, you should be directing your attentions elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. But, okay. So was the real world hypothesis falsified for Truman? Uh, no, he was. He was perceiving real objects. <laughs> yeah, so... You know, like all the people he perceived were real people. They were just actors. <laughs> so they didn't really have the feelings and thoughts that they pretended to have, but they had the physical properties that they appeared to have. So, and you, you know, you never, you never thought you were perceiving their mental states anyway. So that I'm trying to think of like, if I woke up, 
like I think I'm dreaming right now. Or excuse me. I think I'm having a podcast recording right now. And then I, I were to wake up and dreamt it all. Would that falsify the real world hypothesis? It seems not. It seems like, no, I'm in the real world. I was just dreaming before. Well, at the time you wake up, the real world hypothesis is true. <laughs> I guess maybe it was false when you were dreaming. Right. So, I mean, you know, it depends on exactly how you state the hypothesis. Right. But you could state it as, you know, I'm perceiving the real world, meaning I'm perceiving it now. Uh, so, you know, so it was false at the time that we were dreaming. Well, then it seems like. It seems like the real world hypothesis is false whenever you're hallucinating then. Right. Well, I mean, if it's a complete hallucination, then, yeah, <laughs> I guess. Right. But I mean, you know, like I've never had a complete hallucination. <laughs> like most people never have such a thing. You know, like whatever. It depends on how you define the hypothesis. So, you know, you could define it as I generally perceive the real world. Right. <laughs> and that is generally true. But yeah, so how could it be falsified? Well, like actually, if you were um, a brain of that, or if you were a, a sim, because this is a more popular scenario in the last few years, like you're a simulated person and who only exists in a computer. Well, you could experience things that look like computer errors, right? As a matter of fact, like, you know, most programs, maybe all programs, maybe all large programs have bugs, right? Like program flaws. So we could experience that, but we just never do, right? So like periodically the computer should crash and then we should get reset or like the world should just freeze because that happens sometimes, right? Or like it just goes blank because the graphics processing stopped or whatever. All that stuff could happen. Any random thing could happen if you're in a computer simulation, right? Or if you're brain of that. So like any sequence of events, Actually, let me let me just go ahead get back to the very passage. Ah, oh, yes, here it is on page 145. The real world theory predicts, perhaps not with certainty, but with reasonably high probability, that you should be having a coherent sequence of experiences which admit of being interpreted as representing physical objects obeying consistent laws of nature. Roughly speaking, if you're living in the real world, then stuff should fit together and make sense. The BIV theory, on the other hand, makes essentially no predictions about your experiences. Well, why is it the case that the real world theory predicts that you should have a coherent set of experiences? You're assuming that the real world is coherent. That's not an a priori assumption, right? William Lane Craig, when he's trying to motivate the various cosmological arguments, like the Kalam argument for the existence of God, he'll always say, well, like, Tigers just don't pop into existence like the universe couldn't have just popped into existence. You know, he makes these kinds of noises. But we can conceive of a world in which stuff just happens really randomly like that. So the reason we assume that the real world is coherent and not like that is based on our experiences, right? It's not based on any a priori apprehension that, that it's impossible that the world could be not governed in a law-like way. And so to appeal to that experience, to motivate this response to skepticism, it seems circular. Yeah. When you, when you mention Craig's comments, like, well, they do have a certain amount of intuitive plausibility, right? That stuff can't just pop into existence for no reason. Right. Actually, I agree with that. 
it's totally implausible that stuff just pops into existence for no reason. Uh, I'm not 100% certain that that can't happen because I don't know, you know, almost nothing is certain, but it's like it's intuitively plausible, right? So, yeah, it's not like, you know, it's incoherent to think that there are no laws. It's just that if there's a real world, it's more plausible that there are consistent laws. And, you know, there are things like stuff doesn't pop into existence for no reason. As opposed to if you're just in a simulation. Because, like, if you're just in a simulation and the simulators can put anything they want, then it's totally plausible that they can make stuff appear for no reason. Okay. Does that really take seriously the skeptical hypothesis, though? Because the skeptical hypothesis isn't that you've got the evil demon or the matrix or the nefarious neuroscientists or whatever the agent is putting random experiences in you. It's that they're putting like law-like ones. And for all we know, the real world is even more orderly and law-like than the one we're experiencing. I mean, maybe there are only three fundamental forces in the real world. (laughs) Yeah. This is in fact much more chaotic than the real world. Yeah. Right. Maybe the real world has, you know, classical physics instead of quantum mechanics. (laughs) So, so, you know, it makes more sense. And the scientists just came up with this crazy thing. Yeah. What would we say about that? The brain of that people can accommodate any possible evidence. They could just stipulate it in. So, like, here's a thing, you know, you have a hypothesis and then somebody says such and such evidence is improbable on your hypothesis. And so that counts as evidence against it. And then what you can say always is, you know, I'm going to uh, edit my hypothesis so that it just stipulates that that evidence occurs. Okay, <laughs> so right. So initially, I, I had theory T, and then there's this evidence E, which is improbable on T. So it's evidence against E. And then I say, okay, well, I'm going to redefine my theory. My theory is T and E, that conjunction. So now the probability of E on my theory is 100%. Okay, so you could do that. However, the result of that is that it lowers the prior probability of the theory by exactly the same amount, right? So like you don't, so, you know, now you have a high conditional probability of the evidence given the theory, but you just have a lower prior of the theory. And that just exactly compensates for the fact that you raised the conditional probability. Okay. Now, is the skeptic actually doing that? Well, basically, yes, right? You're proposing the skeptic says, not only are you in a simulation, but now I'm going to stipulate the features of the experiences that the simulation makes you have. Right. So that's just conjoining the original theory with all of the evidence. And so, okay, so you can do that. So now the probability of the evidence conditional on the theory becomes 100%. But now you just lowered the prior probability of the theory by the same factor. And you're not doing this with the real world hypothesis. You're not saying, oh, in the real world is like, oh, just what I'm experiencing right now. Yeah. Well, I was thinking that, you know, the possibility that you're perceiving the real world and then the possibility that your experiences are caused by scientists stimulating your brain, like that maybe those could be on a par in terms of prior probability, right? But then if you start conjoining, you know, assumptions about what experiences, like they're giving you coherent experiences, then you're lowering the probability of the brain of that. Now for the real world, I think you don't have to stipulate the kind of experiences, right? The thought is that Okay, so just believing that you're perceiving the real world, that doesn't predict details about your experiences. Like, it doesn't predict 
that you should see a computer screen in front of you or something like that, or that there should be a table here, okay? But it probabilistically predicts some sort of very general features, right? Like maybe there would be consistent laws. You know, if you were being stimulated by scientists, it would be less likely that there would be consistent laws, you know, as opposed to if you were perceiving a real world. I'm not sure I see this. It seems like if you describe the skeptical hypothesis with a great deal of specificity so that you stipulate that they're giving me this particular experience of looking at my computer, then that seems wonky when you compare it to the real world exists that's governed in a law-like way. But you could just describe yeah. the, yeah, yeah. You, you see what I mean? So the, yeah, the skeptic doesn't have to stipulate the exact details of your experiences. The skeptic might just stipulate that you have coherent experiences. <laughs> okay. But that, you know, that is still doing that thing that I complained about where you're lowering the prior probability of the theory by the same factor as, you know, the conditional probability, <laughs> right? So, that, so like the claim is the evidence is that you have a certain broad type of experience, right? The evidence is that, well, you have roughly coherent experiences. Okay. And by the way, like I, I didn't, um, I didn't exactly bring this out, but in my view, the coherent experiences are a minuscule fraction of all the possible experiences, right? So like it might seem initially when I say this, that this is pretty weak evidence, Right. But actually, I claim it's extremely strong evidence because approximately zero percent of possible experiences are coherent. So, like, you know, if you just like program somebody to have any set of experiences, like almost all the ways of doing that have it come out that, you know, it doesn't look like there are any consistent laws. But then what about the a priori probability that the real world is coherent? It, like. You could imagine for all of the possible worlds that exist, like most of those are incoherent or less coherent than ours. So uh, it seems like you could run that logic against the real world too. Yeah, I mean, so you have to have a kind of realism about laws of nature. So if you're a human, then, you know, you're, you're epistemologically screwed. So, and by that, I mean, by human, I mean, you think all that exists are the particular events. And there's no other thing connecting them. So, right. So in Hume's view, like there aren't any laws of nature independent of the particular events. The laws are just summaries of patterns in the particular events. And there's no underlying reason why those patterns obtain. Okay. So like if that's your metaphysical view, then yeah, the total, like, you know, the total number of possible events to see in the real world is the same. Right. And it's just like, you know, and so in almost all of the possible sequences of stuff that would happen in the real world would be incoherent. Okay. You know, but you shouldn't be a human. Uh, you should be a realist, realist about laws. So, you know, if there can really be laws, then they can require there to be uniformity in nature across all time. Like if you start out believing a priori that there are laws of nature, you don't have to know a priori what the laws are. Right. But like there are universals and there could be relations between them. And this is some philosopher's theory of what laws of nature are. Right. Relationships between universals. OK, so then you get a sort of a different probability distribution over the possible things that you should experience. Right. Like, you know, then there's a substantial probability of your experiencing uniformities, provided that you're perceiving the real world. 
right? But that's defeated if you're not perceiving the real world. So when you talk about the real world, real is, that's undefined, right? You're not defining it in terms of coherence, but thinking of coherence as evidence of reality. Yeah. So what does real mean? I don't know. (laughs) You're perceiving the actual (laughs) objects that exist independent of you. uh, And I guess that you're not perceiving a mirror simulation. Uh, Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe there's something to this, that any skeptical hypothesis has to be defined against the real world. You have to be presupposing there is a real world or there, there could be no illusory world, right? You can't have an illusion unless there's something there that could be misperceived. In the terminology of the popular simulation theory, there has to be a base level reality. Yeah. That's not simulating. And then like all of the simulations depend on that. Yeah, you might think maybe the scenario of the deceiving God, I don't know, does that have a base level reality? I mean, I guess then the reality is just God or something. God is just a mind. So, yeah, there's no non-mental stuff. Chalmers has got this paper, The Matrix is Metaphysics where if the matrix was consistent and coherent enough, it wouldn't be incomprehensive enough, I guess. It wouldn't even be illusory anymore. It would just be, this is the way the world is. And if there were no base reality besides God, you might just say the same thing in that scenario, that idealism is true, right? But that's not skepticism. Uh, Maybe you couldn't really comprehend it. A truly deceiving God, like, yeah, without a base reality outside of God. Yeah. And maybe this is the basis for like an argument against skepticism too, which would be that, okay, all simulations have to have a base reality, but base realities, you know, don't have to have simulations. Like the dependence is, is like obviously asymmetric. So. Yeah. If you didn't know which one you were in, it seems like your default hypothesis should be that you're not in a simulation. Yeah, I mean, you might think that that's simpler, right? Because you have to have a base reality. You don't have to have any simulation. So a simpler theory is there's only the base reality. But I mean, you know, like, so this point of view, you know, from Chalmers and other people where even if you're in the matrix, you're still not deceived is weird on its face, right? We might want to, Talk about like why that would even be plausible, right? So, you know, like when people watch The Matrix, they think, oh, yeah, so like everybody was totally deceived. And when Neo got out of The Matrix, that was when he first perceived the world correctly, right? <laughs> you know, and then some philosophers are like, no, no, he was never deceived, right? So, like, here's how you s- sort of start to get to that. Like, well, you perceive ordinary objects like tables and stuff around you, and then you discover stuff about it. Like, Sometimes we discover that the table, which looks like a solid object, uh, it's mostly empty space. Okay, so like there are these tiny particles and the distances between the particles are much larger than the particles. All right, so does that mean that there's not really a table? Uh, So no, we don't conclude that. We conclude that, oh, well, that's what tables are. Tables are these collections of little tiny particles with giant spaces between them. Right. And then you're like, oh, hey, you know, does this mean that nothing is solid? Okay, so there's a table, but tables aren't solid. Right. And then, like, I think the dominant view or at least a popular view is no, actually, that just tells us that solidity does not require being filled up. Right. So solidity is just going to be explained as this feature of the collection of particles, 
where like, you know, it resists compression and it resists distortion by various forces, right? And has like a fixed size and shape. Okay. So the like the particles have to have forces between them that prevent them from changing their configuration. And that's what solidity is. It didn't appear that way at first glance, but all right, that's what it is. And like, why is that what solidity is? Because that's the actual phenomenon that's explaining the thing that we perceive as solidity. Okay, so that's what it counts as being. Okay, so then if you just sort of extend that way of thinking, well, what if it turned out that, no, actually the underlying phenomenon that explains our experience of solidity is like a computer stimulating a brain. (laughs) So then you would say, maybe, like taking this really, you know, to the extreme, you might say, oh, so then that's what solidity is. It's a configuration of a computer system. So that stimulates your brain, right? Like, you know, so maybe what your experience refers to is just whatever normally causes that experience. And so your experience of a table really just refers to a state of a computer, if that's what's causing it, right? If that's what normally causes it. Okay, so actually, tables just are computer states. So it's not the case that there aren't any tables. You're correct every time you think, you know, there's a table in front of me. You find that wildly implausible, that, that that could be not a, not a deception. Like I noticed you mentioned that you think Barclay and idealism, contrary to what Barclay himself, of course, would say, like, of course, this is skepticism. Of course, like if there are just ideas here, there's not a book here. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, you know, Barclay thinks there are no physical objects or whatever. There's no matter. There's nothing that exists independently of the mind. There's only ideas in the mind. But I'm not a skeptic, and I'm not denying, you know, what you observe. I'm not denying observations. Of course, there's a table. All I'm saying is tables are made of ideas, (laughs) which only exist in the mind. So that's fine. And then, you know, my reaction to that is, well, no, because that's just too far from our initial conception of what a table is, right? So, like, you can revise your understanding of the nature of an object to some degree. Yeah. But there's a limit. And if you revise it too much, then what happens is that you're denying that the object existed. (laughs) Right? And so, the concept of a table does not allow it to just be an idea in the mind. (laughs) Right? And also, I think it doesn't allow it to be a state of a computer system. But I think it does allow it to be a collection of tiny particles with spaces between them. (laughs) This sort of semantic stuff, I don't know what to do with. Like, how much of a revision is too much of a revision? You know, it just seems to come down to it's too much for some and, and not others. How much can you stomach, I guess? But it seems to me, though, I'd be willing to say, no, there's really a table there. If we can hang with it's solid, even though it's full of empty space, I don't see why we can't go with there's a table there, even though it's made of ideas. If that sounds ridiculous, it's because you haven't like internalized Barclay's theory. Not that I accept it, but but it does seem to me that if you think of what it would mean to be an idea the way he thought of it, like an idea in God's mind, and we would each have corresponding ideas in this way. Well, now it seems like you're giving me a theory of the object as opposed to like a skeptical account that it doesn't really exist. That's how it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, I guess some people's reaction, this might've, I think this was Russell's reaction was that, okay, so Barclay's theory is that you're actually perceiving ideas in God's mind. 
Okay, but I don't think that's actually Barclay's view. So Barclay's view is that you're perceiving ideas in your own mind, and God caused your mind to have those ideas. Okay, so now, like, maybe God also has a matching idea in his mind, but you can't be perceiving his idea. You can only perceive your own. And, and like, you know, this just comes out in all of his arguments. All of his arguments for how you get to idealism, they all start from you only ever perceive ideas in your mind. God's ideas is what explain why yours is why your ideas are stable. Yeah. But so like, I think it's not compatible with the concept of a table that it's purely in your own mind, right? Like that's the farthest extreme that you can go to. (laughs) And, you know, if anything counts as not perceiving accurately, it's the situation where there isn't anything outside your mind that that you're correctly perceiving, right? Where like all you're perceiving is your own mind. Yeah. Okay. That's true, but that would make all indirect realism automatically skepticism too, because for indirect realists too, the immediate objects of perception are objects in your mind, but there just happens to also be this physical object out there. But in, in the idealist case, your the immediate objects of perception are thoughts in your mind. And there is something out there, so to speak, but it's out there in other minds and in God's mind and the minds of other humans. So it's not like solipsism or something like that. And and it's not like an illusion either, because you're not misperceiving anything because there's no matter out there to be perceived. Yeah. I guess, you know, Barclay is kind of a special case. So the indirect realist would say, oh, so you're not suffering illusions because although you're only directly perceiving your own ideas, they do represent real objects that are roughly the way the ideas represent them to be. (laughs) Okay. So this just is a problem for Barclay because he spends a lot of time attacking representationalism. And so like he wouldn't agree that your ideas represent something. He would just say that you're directly aware of the ideas. Okay. But there could be like a representationalist idealist who thinks, yeah, so like you have the ideas in your mind and they represent the ideas in God's mind. And so actually you're really perceiving something that's external and independent of you, right? Now, I, don't, I don't know what the arguments for this would be because I think all of Barclay's arguments depend upon thinking that you're only aware of your own mind. That It's actually like a logical contradiction to think that you could be aware of something that's not in your own mind, right? I think that's his view. So, but anyway, leave that aside. But okay, and you know, like the simulation people and the skeptics, you know, they wouldn't have Barclay's problem because they would say that there's an independently existing physical reality, which is causing your experiences. So, you know, maybe you could be perceiving that, right? But it's just that, like, the underlying reality is just, like, so radically different (laughs) from what it appears that it just doesn't seem like, you know, you could count as correctly perceiving it. I mean, you know, like, so they would say, no, no, it's not different from what it appears. (laughs) It appears to be exactly the way it is, right? Because, you know, like, when you see a table... Like, I would be tempted to say, it looks like there's a real physical table, but in the simulation theory, there's just like a configuration of whatever electrons in the computer. And then they would say, no, 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 it doesn't appear to be a real physical table. It appears to be a configuration of electrons in the computer. (laughs) Because that's exactly what a configuration of electrons looks like. (laughs) Right. 
the intentional content of your appearance just automatically latches onto whatever is really causing it. That sounds bizarre. Well, Mike, I think I better wrap this up. I got to hit the hay, and I guess you've got a uh, presentation to go to or one to give. Yeah, later. Yeah, okay. It's been great talking to you, and um, people should all go buy my books. Just remember that. And they should also go read my blog, Fake News. Yeah, that's N O U S. Anyone who doesn't know that. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been good to finally have you on. And uh, let's do this again. Sure, let's do it. Thanks. Thanks for having me.